0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to State of Sustainability, where we deliver key insights and unpack any sticky or tricky sustainability issues that have come up in conversations with us. Um, Today, we're going to speak about supplier engagement and kind of run through the pain points about engaging with the suppliers, getting a good response rate, all of that to come and what to do about it. Seth, hello.
1: Hey, Izzy. I actually feel like it's probably all pain points for most people we're speaking to. Uh, but it's nice for us to start to, let's say, pull out some of the main themes.
0: Exactly. And I guess on that point, what's happening today?
1: Yeah, It's a really interesting time. I think that what's exciting, which I'm seeing now, and I wasn't seeing seven or eight months ago. So I actually just got back from the Innovation Forum event in DC. And for any of our listeners who, who know Innovation Forum, they'll recognize that Innovation Forum is one of the best event organizers, I think we find in this space, they also put out a lot of big content. And I was at the DC event. And I was also at the Minneapolis event seven or eight months ago. And versus the Minneapolis event that they did, I felt that the level of understanding and awareness of the topic had just accelerated so significantly. And what I mean by that is in Minneapolis, there were maybe 300 people, I think 250 people, in D.C., there were around 150 people, so similar size-ish. Uh, both sets of the audience were very food oriented, but also a bit of personal care, maybe a bit of uh, peripheral packaging, other related sectors. And in Minneapolis, the conversation was still relatively high level. It's you know like, yes, sustainability is super important. Let's look at what's happening in farming. Let's look at what's happening in, in circularity, et cetera. But then at the D.C. event, more recently, It was very specific we're talking about insets uh, we're talking about specific regulation and the impact it has we're talking about new reporting standards we're talking about data gathering at a level of granularity that i just wasn't seeing several months ago and i think for me what was also really telling was to do those events in the us because my opinion and i i think this is shared by many of our listeners is that Uh, The UK and Europe has been historically much more advanced on sustainability as a topic than the US. And that comes from just having been deeper into the topic for longer, both from the regulatory perspective, but also from the consumer awareness angle. and, and, And as a result, you've had corporations like Danone and Unilever, which have just been really forward leaning on this in the big, you know, big Fortune 500 sort of space. And now what I'm seeing is that the U.S. is actually catching up really fast. And I think that the U.S. will actually accelerate. And I think one of the drivers for that uh, acceleration is going to be just the scale of incentives available. And so a big topic of discussion at D.C. was the Inflation Reduction Act and its incentives. And when you just look at the sheer quantum of funding available, the sheer quantum of incentive available is just orders of magnitude ahead of whatever we see in the UK and Europe. In in the UK, you'll be talking about a big regen ag program running with 800,000 pounds Mm. or, you know, 3 million pounds of capital or something. And in the US, the conversation is just, you know, in in billions. And I think that's going to start to play through. Obviously, a lot of the IRA incentives are carbon removals and renewable energy and hydrogen and so on. But I do think we'll start to see a lot of uh, sort of ripple effect and I think just a lot of sort of farm incentives also coming through, which is going to be exciting to see.
0: Mm. And so maybe on a more granular level and whether this came from conversations you had in DC or otherwise, what are like the kind of problem sets that you're seeing that are emerging around suppliers and yeah, supplier engagement, the buzzword that we all know?
1: Yeah, you know, I I I'm finding that there are these two camps in the debate and very little middle ground. It's a little like politics, both in the US and UK. And so uh, there's this one school of thought that really champions a a sort of a no-touch, secondary data-driven approach. And the idea of that, what I mean by no-touch is, hey, you no no longer need to engage with your suppliers. You're gonna have all your data available to you. It's either satellite-based data streams or it's AI or it's better modeling, data science, et cetera. And so there's this idea that you know, there's a school of thought that, hey, that says, hey, you'll never need to go out there. You'll just have these data sets available to cover your supply chain by almost as if by magic. And then there's another school of thought that is very primary data oriented. And that says that everyone around the world should be providing data for their environmental impact. And all of that data should ideally feed into one system. And the answer is this one platform to rule them all, which just has everyone's data. And I actually think that more people in our community subscribe to the latter, the primary data oriented approach than the former. And I think there's very few in the middle ground around hybrids. And I actually find that the, the primary data approach is one that I oddly enough disagree with. And I say this not just as someone in a a software business focusing on the data and championing often primary data gathering approaches, but I say this also as someone whose previous startup was a farming business, uh, growing flowers for the fragrance industry. And the reason I I can say this from that experience is that a universal primary data approach means that we will need to be able to capture data from the, uh, you know, what is it, 2 billion people working in agriculture or agriculture related sectors around the world, many of whom sit in emerging markets. And on my farming business, we employed over 200 people. It was a reasonably large farming business, the largest flower grower in Pakistan. And I I would be surprised if more than 20 of those had a primary school education. And so we're talking about actually managing to get these people to put in data into a survey some sort, good luck, right? You, you actually need to solve much deeper societal challenges like education and literacy if you're going to move the needle on that. My farm was, like I said, a, a really big farm in context. Most, uh, if, you, if you look at, just to take my example, the country I know, know, know best in emerging markets is Pakistan. And in Pakistan, 1% of the agricultural land is farmed on 100 acres or more. 1%. What that means is that the vast majority of the landholding is actually fragmented smallholder farms, where it's someone farming five acres or 10 acres or 15 acres, and that person is not going to fill out a survey tool, and no one, to, no one is going to pay for any level of data capture that you would believe in and trust. And what I mean by that is we orient around getting something into the form. And that only makes sense to us because we attach such a low-quality standard to what data exists out there. But actually, once we start to have a higher expectation of quality, we'll realize that none of this data is auditable. None of this data is accurate. There's typos. There's incompletions. The idea of solving for primary data as a universal expectation around the world just makes no sense to me. It's not cost-effective. It's not practical. It's not going to happen anytime soon. And even moreover, it's not necessary. I actually think that there's a really nice middle ground where we say, actually, we need maybe a significant minority of primary data capture, 30, 40% at best. Mm -hmm. But what we need is really good distribution. Mm -hmm. The problem is not that we don't have enough people entering data. The problem is that we don't have really good coverage of the data points. And so rather than saying, let's get everyone in Europe to do this, what actually makes more sense is let's have really good coverage in terms of sampling so you can have, for example, and if you have enough data points on cocoa in, in Cote d'Ivoire and in Ghana, you actually have really good coverage of the cocoa industry, given that I think 50, 60% of the market comes from, from those, those, those two countries, or maybe there's a third country adding in. And so you can get pretty good density of data points, actually, if you have a good, if a good spread, basically. And that allows you to then get better secondary data, better, better modeling, better, uh, better use out of the AI tools available where we can actually solve the problem holistically. We, we need to move away from the sort of fetishization of data for data's sake, and actually think about what data solves the problem, what is the problem we need to solve, how do we make better decisions, and what data is good enough for us to make those quality decisions. Sorry, there's a bit of a rant,
0: but. No, it sounds like quite a good hybrid approach. I'd love to also say in that smaller set of suppliers that you do want to engage with, how do you solve like the low response rates with them?
1: I think that there's a few angles to this and, and each of them one could talk about for quite some time. I think the first angle is one that most large companies that have been doing supply chain engagement for more than a couple of years will already be familiar with. And that is that you want to have good materiality assessment as the first pass. So the first pass run of your emissions data, let's say, probably spend based is perfectly fine because it will already give you a sense of who are my, what are my most material categories? Is it, is it dairy? Is it cocoa? Is it sugar? Is it packaging? What are the 7, eight, nine, 10 uh, sectors that are most important? and And that can be a bit different depending on on business i've found that actually what's what's interesting is personal care has a lot of agricultural materials in the value chain, and so does food. but in personal care, you also have a lot of petrochem derivatives which actually end up being a pretty high contributor, and you don't have that always in food so you know there's a, a some some nuances you'll find in that and then the second is who are my biggest suppliers, and therefore just by volume they're in a in a high materiality sector and they're, they're a high volume supplier to me. And the third is let's say they're in a location where actually I'm expecting the emissions intensity to be a bit higher. And depending on what emissions factor database you're using for your spend based analysis, you can probably get that coverage as well. And that first pass already gives you a sense of where to focus. And so most of the companies that we work with and know best will already be aware that there are out of maybe, you know, in the larger cases, 20,000 suppliers, there are probably 2,000 that really matter. Mm. And that already starts to, you, you get to be able to really distill this down. Uh, you know, I, I, I heard it really nicely put by, uh, by Mars in, in a couple of instances where they said, look, our footprint is so big that if there's a thousand tons of emissions from a supplier, it doesn't really matter if that's actually 1,500 or if that's actually 500 because it's it's not enough to really move the needle. But if it's 100,000 tons or if it's 10,000 tons, mm-hmm. then actually it merits a, a closer look because actually that difference could be material if it's not super accurate. And I think that's, that's, that's a really a ro- robust way to look at it. And I think that makes a lot of sense. That's consistent with how most other companies that we, Uh, we know are looking at the problem, most of the larger companies. So I think the Mm -hmm. first area is this materiality. I think there's another piece, which is just how do you actually, uh, how do you unify with other players in the value chain on specific sectors? And so I think that the idea of having a one platform to rule the all for all types of products doesn't make sense. But for instance, to say, look, we are the five companies buying the most dairy products in the US or in Europe or around the world, let's have a unified approach to how the, what this looks like for dairy and what our expectations are for dairy. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and we're already seeing a lot of that happening. Uh, Starbucks is, is a really good example of a company that is taking a really holistic view to a few key materials that have the biggest contribution to their impact. They think about dairy, they think about uh, coffee, obviously, Uh, a few other materials. And they really then try and also reach across the aisles to sort of partner with other companies that are big players in these spaces to see if they can have a joined up unified approach. And what I really like about the way that Starbucks thinks about this is that they say, we have to solve for coffee. Coffee is on us. Other parts of the challenge, you know, we're, we're maybe a supporting actor. Uh, and there are other parts of the challenge where we don't have to play, but coffee is on us. We have to solve for coffee and we have to bring others along with us. And that mindset I think is a really nice way to go out to the supply chain.
0: I think um, rude health were actually referred to the ingredients as their hero ingredients. And those are the ones they are going to focus on like the top five and then the others, um, which I thought was quite a nice phrasing. And another phrasing that really stuck with me was at an event the other day um when nestle started speaking about the collecting dead data so on the point and i think we slightly touched on it earlier like having mass surveys and getting all this data and then being like actually what 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 do i need this data for what's your view on kind of centralizing all the asks for supplies in one as it were like esg survey and yeah, would love to hear your view and kind of where where you would take it.
1: Yeah, again, uh, I, I think it's an important question. And this dead data is a phrase I'm going to start using as well. Was this Emma Keller?
0: Yeah, thanks, uh, Emma. Thanks, Emma.
1: <laughs> Emma. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start using this phrase as well. Um, I think that there is a very superficial level of data that many companies are out looking for right now, which is just sort of an emissions factor. And that already requires a lot of context it requires an understanding of what methodologies were used what types of business activity data were used and what types of emissions factors are underlying the emissions factor that's being shared with me so if you're getting let's say an emissions factor for you know i don't know let's say let's say uh oats for example right just to take the alternative milk instance you want to understand what went into the emissions factor combination that's resulted in the factor that you're getting, like the, the oats, the milling, uh, the logistics, whatever else went into it. And I think that that level of context is, is one important aspect. So businesses need to start being able to get a sort of a, a, a data package that is a little richer and that explains what went into creating this. What we really like on our side of the fence is we like the PACT framework as a way to sort of protect the business sensitive data and share on the environmental data mm-hmm. and to make that fairly seamless for that to flow across organizational boundaries. And this goes back to, I think, one of the challenges with the primary data only approach is that the assumption that everyone is going to feed into one central platform loses a lot of the data security that most IP heavy companies will value, which means if you have a secret sauce, like literally right like a secret recipe for your sauce or a a formulation for your product and bear in mind if you look at like a root health or an oatly actually the formulations can be super important you don't have a lot of ingredients but the actual marginal fractional percentages of your rapeseed oil or whatever else went into this is important it defines the taste and you know pepsi and coke can easily tell you stories about this as well and so you actually will never want to be able to be Parting with the bill of materials data in a publicly accessible data set. But you you might be gotten around to parting with the environmental outputs and sharing that in a system-to-system way. And those can be good enough for the receiver on the other side if they're aligned to a same, the same standard or the same framework. And that, I think, is what BACT gives you. So we're, we're big supporters of that model. And that's, that's obviously, we're also a BACT-conformant solution ourselves. And what we're finding exciting in the space that we're working on is we're able to generate fact conformant carbon footprints for our customers, but we're also able to facilitate the export effectively of those footprints into other companies through an API. And I think that's the direction of travel that we see happening. The other thing that I think that enables, and this you don't get with surveys, Surveys are basically like effectively just a flat file passing across organizational boundaries. And even with a single platform, all you get is the data output. You lose the connection with the business. And what a lot of companies are used to is having that collaborative connection of some sort, whether it's through a workshop or otherwise, where they can actually engage the supplier in a conversation. And I think that what's nice about the way that we approach this through PACT is that you can potentially build other tools on top of the same structure, where you can maybe start collaborating also on interventions and on change. And that can be, I think, very exciting. Think about not just data moving through, but also uh, concepts moving backwards. Mm -hmm. If you think about concept creation, what I mean by that is the largest food brands have done an incredible amount of research on what can actually move the needle on sustainability not just in terms of their own formulations, but also in, term, but also in terms of things like you know, the actual ingredient constitution. Unilever has made a, a number of, uh, of its patents actually I think available on this recently for ice cream to just uh, uh, enable people to store ice cream at lower, at higher temperatures, which then conserves energy. And I think that sort of research in R&D is accessible to the larger, larger players but for them to be able to almost export concepts into their supply chain, right now is a very high touch manual process. And what I think is exciting about having a data exchange kind of foundational layer is that you can also build on a concept exchange layer on top and then ultimately a financing exchange layer on on top of that where you have the data informing where the emissions are coming from, you have a concept for reducing the emissions and you have funding to now deliver that concept. And that's the sort of the, the stack that we think is really exciting.
0: And it's also exciting the value you can then give back to your suppliers as well, because at the moment, it's quite, a re, as you're saying, like a resource-heavy you know, task to fill out these surveys. But actually, if you can push finance back or concepts back, or like commercial value, educational value, that will really help this whole like cyclical cycle of engagement happening.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, ultimately, it's also just about leverage. Uh, I was speaking yesterday with one of the top two or three fast food chains in the world. And what they were telling me is that in an individual region, they might have one individual running procurement. And that's maybe unique in the fast food industry. I don't see that level of leverage requirement in FMCG necessarily. But if you take just that that one person in a region having to sort of pivot across probably thousands of suppliers and at least dozens of unique types of materials, if not many more, what you want to be able to do is give that individual the leverage to drive change without loading on just the high calorie, high touch requirement of having to run a thousand workshops. Mm -hmm. And that I think is is a really exciting technology challenge. Uh, as well as a data challenge.
0: So, yes, a bit more on that. How we've discussed all these like amazing places of what what it could look like. How are we going to get there? Like, do you have any practical advice for professionals who actually are trying to trying to enforce this or push this forward?
1: Yeah, I think that we need to be aware of what the shifts are going to be, and I believe there are three shifts that I find under. Thought about or under considered, one shift is that contracts and the nature of contracts with your suppliers are going to change quite radically. And one of those aspects is just around term, because right now we try we we generally have short term contracts with our suppliers. Like most most uh, most food, a barrel, personal care, right? All these sort of sectors will tend to have relatively short term contracts, which don't actually de-risk the supplier such that the supplier can make any meaningful change interventions. If you want to switch a farm to organic farming, it takes you around three years of just leaving the land fallow or empty and and getting your, 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 your registration. And that three years is an investment you make on the promise of future value. If your contract is not a five year or even frankly, a 10 year contract, an investment of three years doesn't make sense. And we're going to have to see more and more of that de-risking to allow and give comfort to suppliers, not just farmers, but even processors and others, to give them the security and confidence that they can actually invest time and effort, let alone money, in driving the change. So I think that durations are going to to be different. I think we're also going to have to see more in terms of commitment to uh, play around with volumes or preferential terms, pricing, etc., in exchange for progress on actual sustainability. We're already seeing some requirements to share data coming in. And I think what needs to go into contracts alongside those requirements is also transparency on what the data will be used for and what the data won't be used for, such that you kind of explain that the data will be used to calculate our own environmental assessment. It will be used for us to get a sense of where to focus on for driving change. And it won't yet be used to discriminate across suppliers, but at some point it might. And so, I mean, that sort of transparency is going to be important. Uh, And then also some element of target matching. And and that's also, frankly, underthought about in that if you're setting a a target, you do want your suppliers to take on the liability of that target. Otherwise, given most of that target is a scope three target, it's just sitting with you, the brand. So I think all of these sort of aspects in the contract are going to be one thematic area of shift. A second one is going to be blended procurement models. I remember five years ago, I was working with a large packaging company and we were actually trying to craft a procurement index that would allow them to blend in the carbon value and the dollar value together so that they could actually say to suppliers you're going to get different rates because you're a supplier with a low carbon product and you're a supplier with a high carbon product we're not there yet and so the companies that are most advanced on this have typically had some level of ESG weighting BT for example is a good example a good instance where they've had a ESG weighting in their procurement for some time but it's a percentage weighting on the overall procurement and and so it's not actually like a unless they've changed. It's not actually like a blended price. And I think what we're going to move towards is this blended price. Uh, And you won't be able to do that for the social and governance aspects easily or at all, even frankly, and arguably you shouldn't. But I think you will be able to do it for carbon and progressively potentially also water, nature, biodiversity, etc. So that that area I think is, is going to be the second big shift, these blended procurement models. The third, which also frankly builds on that, is going to be the massive upskilling required for procurement teams or supply chain teams. And I'm already hearing this from some of the larger FMCGs, where they have a procurement team leading the buying activities, but then they actually bring in a sustainability supply chain team to have the sustainability conversation. And as a result, the suppliers end up having at least two touch points or at least two interfaces There are some large FMCGs where they have multiple divisions. So they'll have like food and personal care and something else. And then this whole thing might end up duplicated. So you might actually have the same supplier having four or five or six interfaces with one customer from their perspective and having to effectively either repeat the conversation, even fill out multiple different forms for the same customer. And all of that, I think, is not very productive for anyone and and burns a lot of relationship value. And what will help solve this is if there's a if there's appropriate training and upskilling on sustainability for procurement teams, so that they can manage the shift from what has been a zero sum game for over a thousand years. Buying and purchasing and procurement has been a zero sum game literally since the dawn of, of 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 human civilization, where whatever whatever I bought from you, it was in my interest to leave as little on the table for you as possible, and vice versa. And we're moving towards a world where we need more win-win collaborations, where it's actually a holistic view, where we say, this is the pie. Collaboration between us can make the pie bigger. And let's now work and figure out how that collaboration works. And that's to resource optimization overall, for instance.
0: That makes total sense. What about for SMEs who perhaps don't have as much purchasing power to like have, have this sway over their suppliers, don't have as much internal resourcing to spend time with their procurement team, what advice would you have for them?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I think it depends very much on what the SME wants to do Mm -hmm. and what do they want to be known for. And so I would say that depending on what the scale of the resource is that you have available, you can address more or fewer challenges to more or less depth. What I mean by that is if you look at a Nestle, or a Unilever, or PNG, they have sufficient resources to either address multiple challenges, many different challenges, or to go really, really deep on several challenges. And what we're seeing with Unilever's recent, you know, some would call it a step back, I actually think it's a step forward, in that Unilever has kind of retracted from the breadth of its commitments, and said, we're actually going to go much deeper on a few things, and really, really try and deliver value. That's how I read it anyway. And I think that with an SME, to come back to your question, there's less resource available, which means that maybe you can actually only go really deep on one thing. And so, you know, Root Health is a great example, right? Or just companies of that size and scale where you can say, well, I'm going to own one thing and do this one thing really well. Let me give a great example from this week, actually. I was speaking with the team at Davines. And for those who don't know Davines, Davines is a is a really exciting company. I'm actually a customer of their products as well. They're a personal care brand. They're mostly B2B. So they sell you know, hair products, conditioner, etc. cetera, uh, do salons and, and hairdressers. They're a B Corp. And, and you know, they're, 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 not a huge, they're not a huge company relative to some of the others that we've just mentioned. But Davinus has decided that they really want to go deep on regenerative agriculture. And that's one of the topics that they really want to own in a big way. And what Davinus has done is they've set up their own region ag research facility. And that facility, they're not just using for their own innovation and research on new, I don't know if it's botanicals or or new kind of varieties, and just how to grow them and how to to really reduce the impact. But they're also trying to now commercialize that as an offering to non-competitive businesses that also have an interest in region ag. So what they're looking for is can they find like a, a food company that also buys some of those materials? And can they offer their innovation studio effectively, their, their lab, as, a, as an offering? And while that's a slightly adjacent answer to your question, Izzy, it's a way that you can punch above your weight. You pick something and you go really deep. And if you want to go even deeper, you figure out how to commercialize it. For Davinus to go deep on this would it be just to figure out what does region ag change look like if we facilitate and try and move the needle with suppliers. Going even deeper than that means let's set up our own actual intervention pilot or not even pilot, but full-scale facility. And that is only then justified if you can actually even commercialize it. And so that's the model that I, I think is actually quite exciting.
0: That sounds like a lab that I really want to go to. <laughs> um, to take it back to the supplier engagement piece again, what other tools that we can use for like the piece, the Areas that we can leverage for engagement to help us get to where we want to be?
1: I think that the first place to start is probably better contracting, just to go back to what I'd mentioned, which is if there's actually, you, you need some combination of carrot and stick basic principle, but still holds true here. And so the first place to go is do your contracts actually incentivize any kind of real, real change? is there a reason for your suppliers to play ball? And a uh, you know, good example from an event we had recently with Patagonia is Patagonia actually goes the extra level to invest in the supply chain. And so there is sort of funding available for change and it's transparently available. And what Charles Kohn, at Pat- at chair Patagonia board was telling us is that they uh, see it as taking out the mortgage and then charging other stakeholders rent. And so they try and bring other brands on board and other brands pay the rent, but Patagonia is holding the mortgage and that they're the ones who went out with the first commitment to solve the whole problem for this part of the supply chain. And I think that ultimately needs to work itself into contracts. And that's probably one of the easiest places to start. If you say we're actually adjusting our contract. And so we're now requiring data sharing, we're requiring some sort of target matching, but we're also going to give something in exchange. And that I think helps demonstrate to your suppliers that you're serious about this and that there is value on the table. So that's, I think, one good place to start. The second I think is around resourcing. And I still think we're seeing a lot of sustainability teams heavily under-resourced. We're seeing some heavily over-resourced as well, but a lot of the teams, particularly in mid-sized businesses between let's say 500 million revenue and a few billion, five, $6 billion revenue, we're seeing a a lot of under-resourcing for the scale of the challenge. And it's not really possible for one person to manage data reporting and supply chain action. And so if you really, if you want to do, if you kind of even wondering how to even explain this, but like if you want to do reporting well, you're going to need to do data well. If you've used your data and reporting to set any kind of challenge, you're going to need to do supplier chain engagement well. And so the sooner that business realizes that the choice is either don't set a target and don't put your brand equity on the line, or if you are going to set a target and put brand equity on the line, this will take more money, more resourcing, more capacity to do it justice. That's the trade-off that I think more and more companies need to appreciate and come to terms with.
0: Mm. I think on that note, our next episode is going to be on how to run a supplier engagement workshop, which I think Seth might run through with a few others. Um, But I think we're at time. But thank you so much for tuning in. And please give us any feedback, anything at all that you want to see or you want to hear um, in terms of content themes, also style and setup. And thanks, Seth, for all your wisdom.
1: Thanks, Izzy, for having me.
0: See you soon. Take care. Bye.